So this evening, I want to go back a little to perception and vipassana. And then I want to talk about compassion and intention. And I see how much I can cover. So what is interesting about vipassana, looking deeply into the experience, and especially looking deeply in what are called the three characteristics of change, of dukkha, and of, one could say, not-self, etc., is that actually this practice of vipassana, of looking deeply in the experience, is actually challenging a little what you could call a misperception. So we perceive something, but in a way it's kind of like we, we see something, and then it's kind of like there is an elaboration around it. And often that can become like a misperception. And to me, why it's so important, this aspect of vipassana connected to perception, is the fact that I think it's a root of what I would call creative, wise compassion. That yes, we can associate compassion with feeling compassionate. But to me, in a way, there is a deeper kind of compassion which you just don't have the feeling, but that actually the way you are in relationship with the world actually change and is really imbued with that wise compassion from that experiential inquiry into these, for example, three characteristics. So briefly, if we look at change, you have the two aspects of change. You have ultimate change, and you could say temporary change. And ultimate change is the fact that at some point, we'll be gone. It doesn't mean that we're gone now, but at some point it could happen. And at the same time, this also applies with everybody else. But do we treat ourselves and others like that? That in a way, at any point, we could die. And my teacher used to say, your life rest upon a single breath. But do we encounter ourselves and each other with that experiential knowledge? And personally, I feel that if we really know that, it helps us to go beyond our ideas about ourselves and others and to reach humanity. So that when you meet the person, you actually meet more the human being in that moment than your idea of the human being. And so the perception is, in a way, you could say accurate, because we are really meeting in the experience of the person. And having within it that deep experiential knowledge that that person's life rests upon a single breath. And for myself, it really changed when I really finally realized that. It really changed 
my relationship, for example, with my mother. Instead of seeing when I met her, our history and the different feeling tone that created, I started to meet her as this human being right here, right now. And so, and especially now, that now she is losing her memory. You could say she's really not the person she used to be. Like if I talk to my younger sister, she still thinks of my mother as the person she used to be. But she's really not the person she used to be. So to me, it's kind of meeting the person right here, right now. Not the proliferated person, not the past person, but this person now. What does this person need now? How can I help this person now? And then you kind of see the person for herself or himself. And to me, that's what in a way my practice at the moment is, is that because I live upstairs, she lives downstairs. And now I've really noticed that if I become a little, my tone goes a little high, if I kind of rush her in certain way, it's really kind of in a way stop the energy uh, which goes to her brain and so she's even more lost. And so for me the training is to remain calm so that then together in a way we can move forward at that moment in a way which can help her. And that level is very interesting to see the feeling tone, to see kind of she does not get it, she's repeating it, I already said ten times and to just, but each time, for her, is a new time. When you don't have your memory, each time is a new time. So can I too see for her each time is a new time? And so to me, that's why this experiential inquiry is so important because from that arise that creative, wise compassion. The other aspect of change is the fact that there is a potential for change. But to, do we look at ourselves and other with the idea that at some point I can change and they can change? And I think often what we do is that we build up a picture of ourselves and others which actually fix ourselves and others more and more. I'm always like that, he will never change. So in a way, the more you do that, the more encrusted it becomes, and the less you're going to give yourself or others the benefit of the doubt. Instead of seeing, well, maybe that person cannot change right now, but at some point, there can be a possibility for change. And can I help wisely and compassionately that change? Or am I saying, forget it, no point in doing anything, because it will not change. Because sometimes change can be fast, but sometimes change can take a long time. And so to me, that experiential inquiry is there. Again, a compassionate move, the gift of the potential for change. 
that we give to ourselves and others. Then you have dukkha. Dukkha can be seen in many different ways. But here I'll just look at what is called dukkha dukkha. And dukkha dukkha, that actually refers to suffering. This is when dukkha really refers to suffering, when you have like a double dukkha. And then it refers to mental, physical, emotional, whatever kind of suffering. And when we have this type of suffering ourselves, and if we really go into it, we can learn two things from it. That actually, suffering of whatever kind is painful. But secondly, it is isolated. Nobody can experience our pain for us. And this is often what is interesting when we are in pain. Often people say, why me? Why is this happening to me? And then you're basically saying, why is it not happening to somebody else? It's a little <laughs> compassionate move. <laughs> but in a way to see, why me? I would say it's condition, different condition coming together. But if we really know that, that suffering is painful, that is isolating, then we can have this compassionate, wise, compassionate move toward people who are suffering or myself when I am suffering. And then the last one is an interesting one because it's generally referred at anatta, not self. But this doesn't mean that we don't exist. Not self, emptiness, doesn't mean that we don't exist. But what it means is that we might not be existing as we misperceive we exist. Because often we have this strong sense, I am me, I am this unchanging me. That's an interesting feel we have, you know. And so we have this feeling, me, like you, you can feel this if like suddenly somebody looks at you funny and you feel, ah! and it's like there is this me in the middle here which feels, oh! like there is something. You know, why are they looking at me funny, you know. And, but what is interesting with that experiential inquiry, and I think which is, in a way, one of the gifts of the meditation is to see, and that's one of the great teachings of the Buddha, is that we are a flow of condition. We are a flow of inner condition meeting outer condition. And that's what the teaching is about, that actually we are influenced by many conditions. And this is really the idea, is to creatively engage with the inner condition meeting the outer condition. And so this is really what that teaching is very much about. And so it's very much about for us to see, I am not just one thing, but constantly there are different conditions. We come together, some are relatively constant until something dramatic happens and some are changing. I mean, Hopefully, 
tomorrow I will be here on this chair. Possibly not if something dramatic happened in the night. But one thing which is really relatively unlikely is that suddenly I will be a giant pink bunny. <laughs> that, I think, is relatively unlikely. But of course, there could be other transformation, but more like a radical non-existence transformation. So in a way, to see there is a relatively constancy, but within that, there is change. I mean, we can see this very easily. Sometimes you look at yourself in the mirror and you think, poor, fear. I mean, is this me? You know? And uh, then afternoon you feel bright and you know, like this, and you feel, ah, yes, you look at yourself in the mirror, oh yes, you know, that's me. The kind of really clear, you know, really there person. And the one with like that, I'm not sure about that. But we are both. So that's what it's saying, you know, there is some change within some constancy. But what interests me with, the, you know, with this condition is actually through this experiential inquiry, we can look at, in a way, what is it that helps me to survive? What is it that condition my relatively continuous survival? And if we look at this, the air I breathe, the water I drink, the food I eat, the clothes I wear, the medicine I take, the house I live in. So, and most of this, unless you become one of these persons who is totally, totally self-independent and don't require anything from anything else and create everything, and they are relatively rare, those persons, generally our survival depends on all these conditions that helps us to continue to live. And these are coming from the outside. And all the energy for the water we drink, for the food we eat, for the clothes we wear, for the house we live in. And so it kind of re we realize that my life rests upon all, all this energy of other people. I mean, this is something in the monastery in Korea, there was this, every time we ate, there was a chant, which says, you know, reflect on the rice you eat. You know, reflect on all the energy, all the suffering that actually made it possible for you to eat this grain of rice so that it can sustain your life. So in a way that, in a way, anatta, not self, emptiness is actually about interdependence how we depend on each other, how we are connected. And through that, in a way, realizing the compassion, the connection with lives around us. So it's not actually a teaching to take us away from life, but a teaching to actually bring us more into life. And then you have this idea of compassion which is a very important idea in the Buddhist tradition. But it's, I think it's very important to see that 
the idea of compassion is actually, I would say, a very, not a difficult idea, but I would say it's a difficult experience. So actually the practice we do is to enable us to be able to be compassionate. But what does that mean? To be compassionate means to be aware of suffering, means to meet suffering, means to feel for people who suffer, to do something for people who suffer. And the thing with suffering is that when you come into contact with it, is that actually it will activate unpleasant feeling too. Because it's painful to see somebody suffering. And so generally it will bring sadness, it will bring unpleasant feeling tone. It also will make this often this association with possibly some past suffering of ourselves, which might also amplify it. And that's why actually the equanimity I see as being vital in terms of creative, wise, active compassion. So that we can have the compassion which makes us meet the suffering, but enable us to be with the suffering in a way which is not overwhelming. Because we can easily be overwhelmed by suffering. And then also in terms of compassion, to see that compassion is equally for ourselves and others. And to sometimes we'll have more compassion for somebody. It was what I will call heroic compassion. Recently this happened to me. I was going to have a meeting with the Skype meeting with the teachers council here. And 10 minutes before my neighbor said, you, this is urgent, you need to take uh, this lady to the hospital. I said, okay, so I take the lady to the hospital. It's kind of 40 minutes that way. And once we get there, I realize that actually she has a wrong paper and this is a wrong hospital. And in an hour, she needs to be in another hospital, which is the other side, really the other side. And I have an hour to do that. And I'm on this side of the big town and I need to go to another town. And I thought, let's go. So, you know, I was trying to drive fast and very carefully. I mean, I had to drive fast to get there in time. And at the same time, I did not want to have an accident to get there. Because I wanted to get there, to get there. And so I was very aware, very aware. So as I was doing it, it was fine because there was just the urgency of it. But once I got her in the hospital and then she got settled and everything, it was like, whew. It was kind of like sometimes when you have this heroic compassion, then it's kind of poor. You don't, in the middle of it, you don't feel much apart from the speed of it. But afterward, it's kind of, ah, actually I could really experience this unpleasant feeling too of having worried about her or worrying a little about her and many different things. So to really see, we can be heroic, but once it's passed, how are we going to feel? How can we be with those feelings? And then sometimes we have to have more compassion for ourselves because we might be ill. And so we really can't possibly do much for others. And then sometimes we can be in the middle. 
So I think to see there is a whole range of compassionate activity. And then I wanted to talk about the last of the five, of the omnipresent factor, which is intention. So it's kind of, again, a basic function, and I would also connect it, actually, to compassion. So we have this ability. That's one of the functions we have, is, in a way, intention is a movement towards an engagement with the world, as well as recoiling or disengaging from it. We have to see that intention can make us move towards something and act, or remove ourselves from something and not act. So intention can go both ways. But intention is what makes us act, make us move, makes us go in a certain direction. And so it's very important. And so we can cultivate it. This is something which is very important that constantly you have the message to cultivate intention, but not to cultivate any kind of intention. But actually, we are, the idea is to develop caring and careful intention. And that's why actually it's really kind of uh, one of the noble eightfold paths is appropriate intention, or sometimes it's translated as appropriate thought. Or personally, I, I, I think it might be better to be called caring and careful intention. Because what, is, what does a Buddha, you know, how does a Buddha define caring and careful intention? And he said, it's an intention which is inspired, which has within it renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness. So basically, in a way, it's an intention which is looking a little bit at, am I going to amplify here? Or am I going to simplify? And this is interesting, this idea, why does it connect intention with renunciation. And in a way, what does renunciation mean? Because often people see renunciation and they think, oh, you know, I have to, somebody was once telling me, oh, I have to stop drinking coffee. I thought, well, <laughs> you could do that, but, you know, to me what is interesting with renunciation is how do we renounce? What does it mean to be inspired to be moving with this framework of renunciation? Does it mean that I'm going to reject everything in my life? My possession, my friend, my family, and live on top of the mountain? Or float, a little, float on my little clouds and kind of look, oh yes, you, never mind, I'm sorted out. Or is renunciation, actually to me, renunciation, of course, in it you can see it as restraint. In it you can see it as, often it's viewed as renouncing something. 
So I'm going to stop doing this, I'm going to stop doing that. But personally, when I was a nun in Korea, what I realized actually, renunciation was about stopping, not that you stop it, but that the thirst for certain things disappear. So that actually, in the end, I realized it's not renunciation as we know it. You could call it like, you don't do it, not because you want to do it, but you stop to do it. But you don't do it because you think, what's the point? Why would I want to do that? I had, and I had a very kind of a funny experience many years ago when I was a nun in Korea in a taxi. And I was in the back of the taxi, the guy was in the front, and it was a little dangerous because he, he kept turning back and looking at me and saying, wow, you are, you are a Western nun, wow. <laughs> I mean, this is such an amazing renunciation. You can't smoke, you can't have sex, you can't drink, you can't go to parties, you can't be married, you can't have children. <laughs> and I was sitting there, hoping we would get this in one piece. And I was thinking, but I don't want right now to do any of this. Like, I mean, for him, it was like his life depending on doing all these things. And I was sitting there thinking, I mean, actually, I have no desire <laughs> to do any of these things. And so for me, it was like he was excited about something I did not want to do, which felt a little awkward in a way. Because he thought I was amazing when I thought, I mean, there, there is no amazing in that. And that's what is interesting, I think, in this renunciation, which is realizing, in a way, why would one simplify one's life? Is it because I'm told, oh, I am a bad person if I don't simplify my life? Or am I simplifying my life because I see, well, I don't need to make it so complex. I don't need to have so many things. I can, what I love uh, is kind of, I read about another story recently of people who live without money. There is a few of them, not many. Uh, you have one in America, you have one in Ireland, you have one or two in Europe. And the one I just read about was Mark Boyle. And he's a guy who decided to live without money. And actually, I personally am very inspired. I don't mean I live without money. And, but I think this is very inspiring. You know, to know somebody, some people can really simplify their lives. We might not be able to simplify as much as they do, but what does it mean for us? In a way to renounce, to me it's more, in a way, it's kind of nearly asking, what is the least I need? I know because often you think, what is the most I can have? And here is more, what is the least I can need? And that's what is interesting with the Buddha, 
He did not want to, to have his monks and nuns total renunciate. He did not want them to go ascetic, naked, with nothing. I mean, there are some group in India who do that. But he did not want that. He wanted the middle way. And so for him, he could see that the monks and the nuns needed four things. They needed food, they needed clothes, they needed shelter, they needed medicine. And in a way, we have the same. You could say that we have the same needs, but they're a little more complicated because the monks and the nuns, their needs are provided by the lay people. So as long as there are lay people to provide them, they, they can continue. So it's kind of, we could say, a semi-renunciation kind of uh, being based on other people's energy. <laughs> of course, there is a giving back. They give the teaching and everything. But I think it's in our life. What does it mean to simplify? And to what extent can I simplify? And so then, of course, this kind of course nowadays rejoin the ecological movement. And then what is interesting here is how much do I need and how much do I want? And to see the difference between a need and a want. That I think is very interesting to look at. And of course, it's very interesting to explore too, in terms of perception, in terms of intention, in terms of feeling tone, in terms of contact. You know, once I was in, uh, in New York and there was this huge advertisement, it was humongous. And it was, if I remember correctly, possibly it was an iPad number three. I don't know which one, but you know, they, you have this huge thing presented and you're kind of like showing you this. I had the feeling the ad was telling me this. You really, really want it. And looking at that, I was thinking, but do I need it? You know? And so to me, that's what I would say part of simplification is actually exploring that. Then you have non-ill will. And that's an interesting thing because intention of non-ill will, most of the time, we don't want to be aggressive. I mean, most of the time, we want to be kind and nice, friendly people. And then, then we can, the practice, I would say the vipassana practice is to look when I'm not kind and friendly, as I generally would like to be, what are the conditions? And so, so that, in a way, the Buddha is not saying, you know, you must never do this or you must never have ill will. He's very aware we are human. And so within certain conditions, you know, we will be upset, we will react in an aggressive manner. And so what he wanted us to do is to really look, what is it that helps me to be more compassionate? And what is it that makes me actually go more toward ill will? And something which really makes us go toward ill will is unpleasant feeling tone. 
And this is really, I mean, just in daily life. You are at the post office, you are in the supermarket, you are driving your car. I don't know if everybody is a driver here. But my nephew was horrified last year because up to then, he thought Stephen was, as we say in French, really zen. <laughs> so that he was a good Buddhist and he was always calm, no ill will, always pleasant. And then he saw him in a car. <laughs> and he said, what's happening to him? <laughs> He's not the Stephen I know. And I said, well, in certain conditions, Stephen becomes a little different, especially in the car, in the traffic. So in a way, we can observe. And to me, this is fascinating. You're in your car, you're in traffic, yes, yes, yes. I'm calm. I have all the time in the world. May everybody be happy. <laughs> and then you kind of suddenly get into this really, I would say, ill will mood. And so just to observe what happened, what goes on, then what does that trigger? You see, this is what is interesting. When you have the ill will, then it's going to make you intention. You see, this is, intention makes you go toward the world, makes you act in the world. And then you might say something, you might act in a certain way, which might not be very friendly, which might not also be very wise. And so this is, to me, what is really important with the practice. It's not that we be become perfect Buddhist and because often we kind of get the, the impression if I have a perfect intention, you know, and I cultivate my intention, and then in daily life I'll be fine. I am not sure about that. Because before you do your meditation and you set your intention, I think this is an easy place to do your intention. You know, you're going to meditate, nobody is bothering you. It's easy to have a fantastic intention. But how about when you are in your car or when you are in the supermarket or when somebody sends something unpleasant to you? To me, that's where intention becomes interesting. And also, intention is very powerful because I think intention together with attention and perception, if we, I see often that if I set an intention to be aware of my feeling tone, then actually I become more aware of them. If I set an intention to be aware of the changing nature, I am more aware of that. If I set the intention to appreciate, I will be more aware of all the good things in my life. So I think it's not just that we have the intention now, but actually it's kind of intention. What they're saying is that it moves us into the world in a certain way. And then with the power of perception, attention, and of course awareness, 
then actually I think that's where practice happens. In daily life, of course, we can do regular meditation practice, but to me the practice is really in the encountering the world. When the intention, through the intention, we meet the world, we meet the condition, what happens? What happens to the renunciation? What happens to the non-ill will? And then the last one is harmlessness. So, in a way, the intention is to go in the world, to respond to the world with harmless, harmlessness. And again, generally, we do not want to cause harm. It's very interesting when somebody, when somebody seems to cause harm to us, how this immediately is like we want to retaliate. We want to cause harm to them. Like they cause us to have a certain feeling tone and I want them to get the same feeling tone, if not more. And I'm not saying you should not do that. But in a way, is it going to help the situation? To me, this is a thing. I get an unpleasant feeling tone from somebody, and I am going to give it back to them. But then they will want to give it back to me. So then I will want to give it more back to them. And that's where generally how it amplifies. So of course, if somebody is aggressive to us, if you cannot do anything on the moment, I would say, get out. I think this is very important. That, you know, as the Buddha said, lack of attention, move away from it. But if the situation is possible, how can I be with this? How can I, and I think that's where equanimity really comes in. So when there is some difficulty coming my way, how can I creatively engage with that? And I think actually what's going to help us in terms of the harmlessness to ourselves and to others is stability. And to see that you have done a lot of meditation this week, and maybe some of it you were sleepy, some of it you had lots of pain, and you might have wondered, why am I doing this? You know? But I would say the point is actually to really develop physically stability, groundedness. And then that becomes actually uh, some quality within ourselves that in daily life you can access. So that if something comes to you which is a little over the top, aggressive or harmful, then instead of getting it here and it's kind of ah, you can go down, for example, in your belly, in your seat, and create space around it. And then with wisdom, you can see, can I do something about this now? Or do I need 
to go away from it and later come back to it? Or do I need to avoid the person? Once I was working with somebody many years ago, and suddenly I thought I made an innocuous remark, and he went, wow, you always, yeah, you treat me like this. So it was very like, he had a tendency to explode like this time to time. And I could have said, okay, you know, that's your trip, you know, never mind. But I thought, no, this time I really kind of, you know, will address the concern of the person, be there for that. And so I spent half an hour with him and we talked around it and we discussed it. And then very slowly, 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 the heat went. Of course, it's not necessarily comfortable. But to me, this is really what creative-wise compassion, creative-wise intention, in a way, is asking of us, cultivating this kind of training. And so to see that what we're doing here, in a way, is as much for ourselves as with the world. So I think what we're doing here is really so that when we go back into the world, we can, in a way, creatively engage with the world, but also for the world, not just for ourselves. And that's why you have this text in uh, Korea that we used to recite once every two weeks or once a month. And it's called the Bodhisattva Precept. It's a text that translated. And what is interesting that the precepts are basically about intention. And basically about intention of wise, compassionate action. And so if you look at the precept, the precepts are basically about, you know, save people in difficulty, rescue living beings, be there, help the people who are sick, uh, do not put fire so that you hurt insects at certain time of the year, etc., uh, etc. Et so, but what the idea is, they say the precepts are precious. They are like jewels because, in a way, they, they're firm. They held with this intention. They held with this wise, compassionate intention so that it can act in the world. And in terms of compassion, there is this interesting idea in the Son, in the Zen tradition, that you have the intention, you have the action, and you have the result of the action. So what you're trying to look at is the three. Because you see, you could have a compassionate intention, but actually the action might not be compassionate and the result might not be compassion. Or you might have a compassionate intention, compassionate action, and the result might not be compassionate. So it's really troubling. And then, I mean, you have different kind of elements in these three things. And to me, this is really the practice can be about, to kind of creatively engage with these three elements of the compassionate intention followed by the compassionate action. And then, what is the result? That's very interesting to see.
is it a good result or is it not the good result? And so to kind of re really, that's what they call the three wheels. And in a way, learn from these three. So that's what I wanted to say. Are there any questions or comments? So if there is nothing, then there'll be some walking meditation outside. Huh? Oh, there is a question. Yes? Um, do you think that age um, plays an important factor on people being able to change? Because it's the older you get, um, sometimes it's harder for somebody to change. Can you hear me? <laughs> no. Mm. So, I, I would not say necessarily older people will change with more difficulty necessarily. Because personally, I, have a, I had a friend, she became a nun when she was 55. And then when she was 70, she decided to stop being a nun to live freely. And I really love that, you know, that she could decide later on in life to do that and later on to change and decide to do it another way. And also I can see some younger people who, if they have very difficult conditions, it will be very hard for them to change. But it doesn't mean that 30 years down the line, they might not change. So I am not so sure. I think there are many conditions which will help somebody to change. There is internal condition, there are external condition. So I would not have like a preconceived idea that somebody will not change. But it's true that sometime at a certain point, uh, they might not be such a great change, but due to the condition. I remember when I was uh, many, many years ago, when my nephew had great trouble with my uh, grandmother when she was still alive. And one day I said to him, but do you think that grandma is going to change for you now? And he thought, possibly she's 85, possibly not. And so possibly I have to adapt to her. <laughs> so I think possibly after a certain age, and if there are certain physical and mental conditions, yeah, yes, it might be difficult to change. Or the change will be possibly uh, sometimes a negative one. That's possible too, yeah. Yeah? You see, this is a thing. You have, a, I would say, intention is connected with what I would call inspiration, aspiration. And I would see the difference between aspiration and expectation. Because if you aspire to something, it's intention and it's going to move you into a certain direction. You can aspire to wisdom, to compassion, 
and then it will move you to do something to cultivate it. But if you expect now to be 100% compassionate, 100% wise, then that might actually be more tense making and actually fixing because you have a very definite idea of how it should be instead of having the energy of the aspiration and then that can develop in different creative ways. So I think it's interesting to notice how does it feel when I expect something of myself or others. That's the same. You know, they must change. Once I met this fellow, I was really weird. He told me this story, like it was somebody who needed to, co to be compassionate to feel better. So he would kind of look for people to be compassionate to. And so he kind of, you know, look at likely candidate. And so once he found a really good likely candidate, a homeless person on the street who had many different problems, drugs and different things like that. And so he said, I'm going to help this person. So he did it once. And then the person came back to be homeless and same drugs. Then he did it. So he said, I give up on this one. <laughs> then he thought, no, 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 I can't give up on this one. So kind of second time he went to kind of really, I must change him, I must change him. And again, the guy came back to being homeless and everything. And so he gave up again. And then the third time he decided this time, no matter what happened, I am staying with this fellow for the long term. And that time it worked actually, because the, then the, the fellow could feel that the guy believed in his potential instead of having expectation that I must be like this, I must be like that. And it really changed the situation. Yes? Okay, so you see, I became a nun because uh, from 18 to 22, I lived quite a free life. And I kept seeing myself making the same mistake. And after four years of that, I thought, do I want to continue to say, make the same mistake in terms of relationship, in terms of sex, in terms of this, in terms of that. I thought, do I want to continue to do the same thing? And I thought, possibly not. So maybe if I become a nun, then that could help me not to make the same mistake. <laughs> but before that, it, it needs to be said. I was never into smoking. I tried drugs. They did not do anything for me. I drank alcohol possibly once or twice. I did not do anything for me. I was nece not necessarily into going out and dancing all night. I tried this once or twice. It was not very satisfactory. <laughs> so um, let's say that when I became a nun, I was not renouncing anything I had great wish for, in a way. 
So at that level, it was not such a great renunciation because in a way I was renouncing doing something which did not seem to work very well. So, and I'm not saying that you have to renounce everything that is pleasant in your life, but the question is more, what kind of pleasure does it give? Is it a pleasure uh, which I would say is creative, is uplifting? Is it a pleasure which is more to lose, to, to lose oneself, you know, like if you take lots of drugs or you take lots of alcohol or lots of sex or different things of that nature, in a way I would ask, what is the motivation? What is the motivation? In a way, what is it doing for you? I'm not saying you cannot take drugs, take alcohol, have sex or things of that nature. But personally, I would look, what's the function of it? how one is using this. And so that's what I would look at in terms of, you know, what, what is the function of these things? And does it have a helpful effect? So, so, so that's what I would look at in terms of those things. But no, I don't think, you know, you should become celibate, go on top of the mountain and eat uh, raw rice. <laughs> to be awakened. I don't think so. Okay, so maybe we'll stop. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.